For the adults that are staying here, let's get the book of Habakkuk chapter 2. Guys, that's a, a little bit too loud. Yeah, bring me down a bit. Habakkuk 2. I think we overshot the mark. Back up. Habakkuk 2 and verse number 15. All right, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 15. Now, you can tell when certain, whoa, way too loud again. Sorry, we'll, we'll land on the right spot here in just a moment. But, but speaking of volume, uh, when, when certain guys are gone, certain folks are gone, you can tell, right? When Zintle's not here, you, you hear it, don't you? Because, man, that guy can sing. And this morning we have a handful of guys out, just dif- different, uh, traveling different places. But Zintle and Francois, they can really sing nice and loud. When we have both of them out, we're going to need about 20 other people to, st- <laughs> to really step it up with the singing to f- fill that gap there. Habakkuk 2, and today we're in verse 15 down to 17. And I believe this is going to be our fourth woe that we are covering. And verse number 15 says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that puttest thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Let me point something out to you if you would follow me here. Verse number 6, that's the first woe. Look at the end of the verse. There's an exclamation mark. And then the second woe, verse 9, ends in an exclamation mark. Verse 12, same thing. Verse 15, same thing. Verse 19, there's our last woe. You can see in the middle of the verse, arise, it shall teach, exclamation mark. I just want you to see the emphasis that the Lord is putting on these woes. It's a big, big deal to him. These are serious offenses that the Babylonians are guilty of. But as I've been trying to point out, Although historically the Babylonians did these things, this is true of any wicked man. Any person that falls into this type of lifestyle is is under that same, let's say, wrath from God. Verse 15, what we're concentrating on today, you can see, says, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink. This verse has often been referred to as the bartender's woe. Because you can see how somebody would get that. Here's the bartender handing him a drink. Now, To be honest, I don't think that's really fair to bartenders um, because you can see the reason that this man is giving somebody a drink in the verse. It's built into the verse. Let me say right off the the bat here, there is a difference in how people consume alcohol. There's a difference between consumption that affects no one else. Somebody sitting at home, not getting drunk, the old glass of wine with dinner kind of idea. That's, and and I'm not speaking to how good or bad it is. I'm just saying that's one category. That is not the same as somebody that's mentioned in verse 15. Let's not lump them all together this morning. There's a difference between the person who's affecting no one else, not getting drunk, and then somebody that goes out, we call it social drinking. And again, no drunkenness. They're just out with friends and that's what they do. I want to say it's a private affair in that they're not at some large institution that serves the alcohol. They're at some friend's house and that's all that it is. And then you have another category where we deal with intoxication. Whether it's public or private, that's a whole separate issue. And that's something that's outlawed in scripture. And then we also have the party life idea. The person who is living a riotous life. The Bible word that you have in, in the Bible we use is rioting, which is another, it's the old English word for partying. 
All right, to, you see the prodigal son. He wasted his life with riotous living. That's the kind of person we're dealing with in verse 15. There's a specific goal in mind. When they put the bottle to the neighbor's lips, they are intending to get that neighbor to do something he or she should not do. And it's clearly pointed out in verse 15 what that thing is. Now, any, the Babylonians, if we could think of this historically, they have been going around from nation to nation completely wiping them out. We're going to see this in verse 17. Putting fear in the hearts of every nation where they went. And then when they were done conquering the nation, their next conquest was their own passions, their own appetites. I have gone to every nation and I got what I wanted. No one stopped me. Whatever I wanted, I took. Whatever I wanted, I did. I don't care what people think. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now you see that attitude they had about conquering other nations translated to what they did in their off time, their downtime. Now that they're not out conquering their neighbors, now they're going to try to, let's say, de defeat them in battle, they're going to try to conquer them in a different way. And now it's all about fulfilling their lust and the same idea, I can do whatever I want. Whatever my appetite is, whatever passion I have, I will fulfill it. Now, it's built into all of us because we have a conscience. We know that there are boundaries that we should not cross over. We know that there are some things that just go directly against nature even. And in order to lower our inhibitions enough to actually go through with those evil lusts, those wicked desires, somebody will employ alcohol or any other intoxicant to get their inhibitions down. Now this is true whether you are trying to get somebody else to sin or maybe you have been, like the Babylonians, guilty of all sorts of crimes and your conscience is pricking you day and night, telling you what you've been doing is wrong, God is upset, you will pay for that and in order to quiet your conscience, you try to bury it under an empty bottle. The thing is, it's not that your conscience isn't talking to you anymore. But you drink yourself into oblivion so that you cannot hear what your conscience is saying. But as soon as you come back from that drunken stupor, you'll find that your conscience is now screaming even louder. Because you're only adding to the problem. And that's what these Babylonians are doing. By day, ugly warriors. By night, party animals. Either side of it, God is upset with. In the verse, you can see at the end of it, you put the bottle to him and makest him drunken also that thou mayest look on their nakedness. You'll find this consistently in Scripture that these two things go together, wine and nakedness, right? Drunkenness and sex. These two things, they go together to this day. This is common all throughout the world. Hey, baby, can I buy you a drink? Right? That's where a lot of cheesy bad pickup line start can I buy you a drink we know what this man's eventually trying to get to but it starts there he's he's trying to show this woman favor and get her to lower her inhibitions so that she doesn't think clearly she cannot make good upright decisions and off we go from there getting naked around people that you should not be naked around you must have some liquid courage to do that because in your right mind you wouldn't do that Nobody's going to walk through town taking their clothes off. 
You'd have to be out of your mind to do that. So, so what do we do? We drink ourselves out of our mind so that all of, it's not that it makes sense to do this, but now I don't care. I can't think, I can't feel, and I probably won't remember what I'm doing anyway. So first the alcohol, then the shameful deeds. Let me show you a few verses of scripture that go with this idea of drunkenness and nakedness seemingly always popping up together. Proverbs chapter 23. Would you turn with me there please? Proverbs chapter 23. And let's begin reading in verse number 20. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse number 20. The Bible says here, Be not among wine-bibbers, among riotous eaters of flesh. Now, for Yelamensa in Hiriland, you have got to rejoice at how this verse is worded, especially the end of the verse. Because imagine if it said, Be not among eaters of flesh. Wow, with Yelan and the Brai, ooh. Yellow's no claw, if that's what it says, right? But thank God, it says riotous. You see the word we spoke of earlier? Riotous eaters of flesh. This is the, verse 21, different words. For the drunkard, there's your wine bibber. And the glutton, there's your riotous eater of flesh. For the drunkard and the glutton shall come to poverty, and drowsiness shall clothe a man with rags. That's the end of the drunkard, the end of the person who lives in pleasure. Come down to verse number 26. 26. I'm just showing you what the context is. Now in verse 26, Solomon speaks to his son. My son, give me thine heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. For a whore is a deep ditch and a strange woman is a narrow pit. She also lieth in wait as for a prey and increaseth the transgressors among men. So now we see where the context has shifted. Don't be a drunkard. Don't be a glutton. Watch out for strange women. Say, what is a strange woman? It's not a woman with a third eyeball, right? It's not, it's not that kind of strange, you know, six fingers on each hand. Not that. A strange woman is any woman you're not supposed to be with. So anybody outside of your spouse, that's the, she is a stranger. She's not part of that marriage covenant. So watch out for that. Verse 29, watch how he links the context. Who hath woe? Do you remember that word from Habakkuk 2? We know who has woe. I, there, there's many people that do. But look who this context is. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? They like to argue. Who hath babbling? They can't, they can't talk clearly. Who hath wounds without cause? They fall over stuff, trip over stuff, bang their head, their arm, their leg, whatever it is. Who hath redness of eyes? There's the bloodshot eyes. Verse 30, the answer. They that tarry long at the wine, and they that go to seek mixed wine. So do you see the person he's talking about? This is the guy who has woe and sorrow. He is a drunkard. Verse 31, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. That is the fermentation process. You leave that grape juice in the barrel long enough, it will begin to stir itself. It, it has a mind of its own. And it will first move itself, and then if you drink it, it'll start to move you. Look at the end of it in verse 32. At the last, it biteth like a serpent. 
and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold, what? Strange women. Do you see how these two ideas kind of mix and mingle? They flow together. You get busy with that wine and all of a sudden the wrong crowd starts coming around and various temptations present themselves. Thine eyes shall behold strange women and thine heart shall utter perverse things. You would never touch that woman if you were sober. But once that alcohol kicks in, now you start doing things you normally wouldn't. You start saying things you normally wouldn't. It's that liquid courage in a very bad way. Verse 34, Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. You lose your balance. You start just, you've seen a drunk walking side to side, wobbling. Verse 35, They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. You are past feeling. Do you see that? Past feeling. For those of you that are making notes, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, it talks about the Gentiles, the unsaved Gentiles, who are past feeling. Their conscience pricks them, God tries to convict them, and they don't feel it. This person says, when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. So this intoxicant, this alcohol, it acts as a conscience suppressor. And many people, they drink because they can't deal with the reality of their life. I'm sure the Babylonians were busy taking wine because it was part of the riotous life, the party life. They just wanted to enjoy all of their passion. But I'm sure there were a few Babylonians that when they tried to lay down at night, all they could think about is the people they slaughtered, the people they hurt. And and they could not live with themselves. So every available opportunity, they put something in their body that would help them stop thinking and stop feeling. Turn in your Bibles. You can hold Habakkuk. Get Genesis chapter 19. Let me give you a couple other verses where drunkenness and nakedness will go together. You can see a a, a glimmer of that in Proverbs where we just were. Genesis chapter 19. Let's get verse 32. I think you're familiar with Lot's story. He has exited out of Sodom. God has burned it to the ground and now he's run to this small place and he's left alone with his two daughters. Verse 32, the firstborn is speaking to the younger. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve seed of our father. What an atrocity. This is an abomination in many, many ways. How can a, I don't even want to say civilized, how can a sane person, a stable person, ever justify what she's about to do? How can you get Lot to go on with this plan? Lot is not any sort of spiritual example, right? But even Lot had more scruples than to lie with his daughter. How do you get him to do that? First, give him wine. And then we can get him to do whatever we want. Then it's it's a manipulation tactic after that. Uh, Come to chapter 9. Genesis 9. We're working our way back here in Genesis chapter 9. Get verse 20. Noah comes out of the ark. In verse 20 it says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. So he's growing his own grapes. And then, of course, he makes his own 
wine, we can assume, because of what we read in the verse after that. Verse 21, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Do you see the drunkenness and the nakedness, one right after the other? They keep showing up. And then in verse 24, you read, Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. Not what his younger son had seen, but what his younger son had done unto him. Some sort of physical evidence left behind. So when Noah wakes up, he knows some abomination has just happened here. Now, I, I, let's not get into what actually happened. That's a story for another time. Noah, I think, represents a different category of drinking, if we can address it for a little while. Noah was a righteous man, was he not? An upright man. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Mightily used of God. Preserved the human race. Built the ark. We know the story. But think for a moment what Noah had to go through. How many people did he feel responsible for perishing? I wonder if he heard the screams of the people banging on the ark as God locked the door after Noah and his family went in and the people are banging. They can feel the rain coming down, the earth trembling beneath them and they're banging, Noah let us in, Noah let us in. I wonder as Noah exited the ark and he sees bodies floating by. Noah looks out of the ark, he sees the bodies as he exits the ark and the water has gone down. There's dead bodies lying everywhere. Everywhere. How do you cope with that? I am, I, I am confident to say that Noah was wrong to get drunk. All right. I have no problem saying that. But I am also quick to say, I don't know if I would have done much better. Because given the pressure he was under, I can understand why a man would not want to think about what he had just gone through. I'm not justifying his actions. I think he was wrong. I think we'd all agree. But you understand some people fall into a life of drinking not because they're a party animal, not because they've been living a wicked life and now they want to suppress their conscience. Some people, they grow up in a drunkard's home. And that's the life they know. And that's tragic and that's sad. And again, I don't justify that person drinking. There is a, a way of escape, is there not? With every temptation we have, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says there is always a way of escape. God's grace will always be sufficient so that you can overcome any bad habit, even a life of alcohol. So there's, there's no condoning it. But we can offer a little bit of compassion and understanding for those that have suffered something traumatic like Noah, like somebody that was abused or grew up in a drunkard's home. We can understand why alcohol might seem like a good idea. But never, listen, if you want to soothe your conscience or if you want to find comfort, the best place is not at the bottom of a bottle but in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That wine will only give you a temporary, temporary reprieve at best. And then it will leave you with multiply, multiplied problems the next day. Find the comfort and the clean conscience you need in the arms of Christ. I wonder then, from what we've seen, this connection with drunkenness and, and nakedness, and by no means have I showed you all the verses. I think you can 
conclude the, the point here. I wonder then if we can move this back into Genesis 3. Have you ever wondered what Eve ate? What, what kind of fruit it was? A lot of people say it was an apple. I don't believe that. You know, we call this part on the man the Adam's apple because they say, you know, Adam ate the apple and there it got stuck in his throat. That, that's poetic and all, but it's not biblical. I cannot fully prove it, but I have a suspicion that Eve ate a grape. I got a suspicion. That's what it was. You ladies, even to this day, when you want to get all fancied up and attract the man, you put the lipstick right there. Right where Eve's lips were stained by whatever she ate. I wonder, right? Because that's, we see a connection with drunkenness and nakedness. It was right after they ate the fruit that they realized they were naked. And they were ashamed. I wonder then if that doesn't, it doesn't prove it, I know. But I wonder if there's a connection there with that fruit of the vine. I'm not saying Eve got drunk. Please don't go that far. And I'm not saying there was anything physical between her, her and the serpent. Nothing like that. I'm just wondering if it doesn't stem from what happened in the garden. This, this duality of, of uh, drunkenness and nakedness. Now, if you would, uh, hold your place in Habakkuk and flip over to Hebrews chapter 3, please. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 13. Let's look at this together. The Bible says, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now this is a broad statement. Any sin will work in this verse. Today we're talking about the sin of drunkenness. So let's think of that in, in light of our topic. I think you've heard me say it before. Man takes drink. Drink takes drink. Drink takes man. Often we start off with this idea, I'm in control. And alcohol will let you think that. This is why you say, I mentioned at the beginning, there are different categories of drinking. If I could give you some good advice, don't ever start. Say, but I'm not hurting anyone. Okay, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. And if your conscience is fine with that, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Amen. Have it to thyself before God. So if you want to do it in the privacy of your home, just know that God is watching and on, on you go. But I think it is solid advice to say better off staying away from it. Right? And, and not that the initial just taking a sip with dinner is sinful. But it's where it might lead. Every drunkard I've ever met or spoken with. It started off in, with an innocent gesture of this isn't a big deal. I'm in control. I know when to stop. Do you now? Ask the drunkard 20 years later. Do you still know where to stop? See, at first, man takes a drink. And man is in control. Alcohol will sit back and quietly snicker under its breath and say, <laughs> you think you're in control? Keep drinking. Feels good, doesn't it? Have all the fun you want. You're in control. <laughs> It'll just kind of laugh under its breath. And then after a while, who knows how many months or years it would take, 
It's not the man taking the drink. It's the drink taking the drink. Why do you drink? Well, this is what I do. I like it. I'm used to it. It's my habit. It's my thing. I drink because I drink. This is just what we've always done. It's our culture. I like that answer. It's our culture. And then after a while, even though you want to stop, you can't. You're not doing it because you like it. Oh, we still got a slideshow going there. You're not doing it because you like it. You're doing it because you have to. You can't stop. Now the drink is taking the man. You thought you were in control. And then slowly, alcohol is not in any rush. Sin is not in any rush. It'll take its time, but it'll eventually break you down. Let me show you another verse that goes with this. Come to Proverbs chapter 20. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 20. While you're finding that, let me remind you of something Jesus said in John 8. He said, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Never forget who's in control. Say, well, I'm going to live this riotous life. Mr. Prodigal Son, you're not in control. Sin will let you think you're in control. As long as you've got money in the bank. As long as you've got a job. As long as your friends keep coming around. But one day, you're out there feeding the pigs. Your friends are all gone. You're far away from the Father's house. And you realize all this time, you weren't in control. Sin set you up. That's the deceitfulness of sin. What does it say in Ecclesiastes 8? I think it's verse 11. Those sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. I did it. I got away with it. Ha! I win. I conquered. Mr. Babylonian. I conquered. I can do what I want and no one can stop me. Yeah. Eventually they will. Whether it is the other nations you've been conquering, they will one day turn on you. Or whether it's internal, what you've been doing to yourself, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Proverbs 20 verse 1. Wine is a, help me, what is it? Mocker. Strong drink is raging. And whosoever is what? <clears throat> Deceived thereby is not wise. Hebrews 3, what did I show you? The deceitfulness of sin. Do you see in this particular category, wine, strong drink, it can deceive people. Now, as I've said, it's maybe a different subject. We're talking about social drinking, what you do in your home. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for something that God lets you do. Drunkenness is the issue, right? Let all things be done in moderation. I understand that argument. But again, I just reiterate, I think it is good advice. If you're trying to avoid problems, probably better off staying away from something that might lead you down the wrong path. Wine is a mocker. It'll just stand back and laugh. Uh, come back to Habakkuk now. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 2 again. Let's move into verse 16 and 17 now. Verse 16, thou art filled with shame for glory. 
So that is the things they're proud of are the very things that make them look bad. They think it makes them look good. In reality, they look foolish and shameful and sad. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee, and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. For the violence of Lebanon shall cover thee, and the spoil of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood, and for the violence of the land, of the city, and of all that dwell therein. If we can just address verse 17 for a moment. God is aware of the atrocities that the Babylonians have been committing, not just what they're going to do to Israel and Judah, more specifically, but what they've already been doing to other nations. They conquered Lebanon, and when they did, they ravaged that country, killed people mercilessly, took their animals, killing some, stealing some, and then Lebanon was known for their beautiful cedars, Babylon stripped the country bare of its cedars and used those trees to build the city of Babylon. So you might remember earlier in verse 11, the beam out of the timber shall answer it. These are stolen beams from the forest of Lebanon, these beautiful cedars. And what you have essentially have in verse 17 is you scared the Lebanese people out of their mind. Right? It says there, because of men's blood for the violence which made them afraid. Now the fear that the people of Lebanon felt, that is going to be given back to the Babylonians. When the Medes and the Persians come, because the Chaldeans were not merciful, God says, all right, when your enemy comes, they won't be merciful. And that same fear and the same thing you did to Lebanon, that's going to come back on you. It's the whole idea of reaping and sowing. So not only their conquest in war, God is going to judge them for that, for their extreme violence, the ferocity of it. But also, verse 16, their lack of morality, the things that they did in, in the dark of the night, throwing these wild parties, God said, I'm going to also bring that back on you. So let's talk again in verse 16 for a moment. Thou art filled with shame for glory. As I mentioned just a moment ago, they... They like to brag about their conquest of other nations and their con Look at how much I can drink. Look at how many women I can get to bed. To this day, do we not hear the same sort of, I, I want to call it locker room chat. When I was young and an athlete in the locker room, this is what you talked about. And we used to thump our chest and brag about it. This is how drunk I was. This is how wild I was. We thought it was a badge of achievement. It was exactly the opposite. Absolute shame. I think maybe we can pull into this what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3. The church of the Laodiceans. They said, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. They thought that was a compliment. They thought they're saying something good about themselves. We're self-sufficient. We know our rights. We're, we're on top of things. Jesus said, and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked, you don't know how bad off you are. Too busy patting yourself on the back to actually look at what you are. When, can I ask you to flip over to Philippians chapter 3 for a moment? Hold your place in Habakkuk. Philippians chapter 3.
Philippians 3 verse 19, Paul says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. What does he mean? Whatever your appetite is, that's what you serve. Whatever you want, right? You're going to do your will, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. We're talking here about the enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul said this, you see in verse 18, I tell you even weeping. Paul's not rejoicing that he's able to judge and condemn these enemies. This is a heartbreaking thing and I, I want to have the same attitude as I say this to you. Somebody who is bragging about this sort of lifestyle, let, let's not just look down our nose and go shame on him and that's the end of the conversation. Shame on what you're doing, but hey, you can change. God's grace can pull you out of that life and show you a much more satisfying, a much more uh, happy and joyful life. If we can just convince you the other side of the cross, not be its enemy, but its friend. But see what the Babylonians the punishment God has planned for them, Paul points out the same thing is going on in the New Testament, whose end is destruction. They're bragging about it now, but one day when they stand before God, they will not be boasting of their achievements. Not anymore. A, a true strength, guys, is not the ability to fulfill all your lust, but rather to crucify your flesh. It takes a real man to say no to what he wants. That's a real conquest. Conquering your appetites. Not giving in to them, but conquering them. Dis disciplining yourself. Uh, while you're in the New Testament, hang on to Habakkuk. Get Romans chapter 1. Something else that God said in Habakkuk. It says, Drink thou also, <clears throat> and let thy foreskin be uncovered. So the drinking and the nakedness going together again. You know what God is telling them to do? Look at that. He says, drink thou also. <laughs> well now if it's wrong to get drunk and do what they're doing, why would God say, go ahead, drink? Doesn't that sound strange? Drink, get naked, go ahead. Y you realize what that is. That is the absolute worst punishment God can give somebody that is still alive. The only thing worse is hearing him say, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. That's the next worst thing. But under that, while you're still breathing, the worst thing God can tell you is, go ahead, do what you want to do. It doesn't get worse than that. So, in Romans 1, I want you to see here, the same thing is mentioned in verse number 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. God has revealed himself to these Gentiles and they continually change the truth of God into a lie. They say we've got it figured out, verse 22, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and God says okay, if you're so smart, I'll step back and let you do what you want. Now God is not stepping back forever. He steps back and says, I've tried everything to reach you, but you're not listening. Do what you want, and I'm going to be right here waiting for you to repent. If that sinner repents, they can find mercy from God. But they have gone so far, they have seared their conscience so much 
that God takes his hands off and says, I'm done dealing with you. Guys, eventually enough is enough. God tries mercy and long-suffering and patience for years and years and years in an individual's life and dozens if not hundreds of years in a nation's life. But eventually God has to pull away and say, mercy we tried, now it's time for justice. You can see it in verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Verse 28, you can see it again. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. They're not fitting. It's not right for any natural man to do what these people are doing in Romans 1. But it's not God's fault. God did not, it didn't start with God giving them a reprobate mind. You see, they first pushed God out of their mind. God says, if that's the kind of mind you want, I'll step back and let you have what you want. Come back to Habakkuk and we'll finish with this part of the verse. It says at the end of verse 16, The cup of the Lord's right hand shall be turned unto thee and shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. So here they are in their beautiful dresses and robes and gowns and uh, they're, you know, like Belshazzar at the party, drinking wine out of the cups of the temple and praising the gods of gold and silver and brass and wood. And the idea, the picture that God is painting is those same party animals with vomit all over them. Shameful spewing shall be on thy glory. You think you're saying, look at me, look at me. Might I again remind you of what Jesus said? He said in Revelation 3, I would that were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spew thee out of my mouth. It makes him sick. Take your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 25. Let's talk for a moment about the cup that's in the Lord's right hand. The Lord's right hand, that's his strong hand. That's his strong hand. Whenever he's talking about his right hand, that's where you find his strength. Jeremiah 25, let's look together at verse number 15. Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And they shall drink and be moved and be mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Do you see what the cup is linked to? The cup of this fury or wrath. It's going to bring a sword on that nation. So this is like a symbolic gesture. Jeremiah goes around with this cup and says, here you go king, here you go king. Drink it because the sword's coming. Verse 17, then took I the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. Verse 18 on down, you see all the different nations that are under the punishment of God. Come to verse 27. Therefore thou shalt say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink ye and be drunken and spew and fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. These nations, right, this generation of these nations finished. Verse 28, and it shall be if they refuse to take the cup at thine hand to drink, then shalt thou say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, ye shall certainly drink. Say, I'll get away with it. No, you won't. No, you won't. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Verse 29, for lo, I begin to bring evil on the city which is called by my name. And should ye be utterly unpunished? Ye shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword upon all the inhabitants of the earth. 
saith the Lord of hosts. One more verse. Get Psalm chapter 116. The 116th Psalm. And look with me at verse number 13. Now that cup of God's wrath, you don't have to drink from that. That is when it's gone so far that there's no coming back. Where God says, that's it. I'm putting my foot down. You have sinned a sin unto death. It, it can get that far. But this morning, if you're here, I don't think it's gone that far yet. You have an opportunity to take a different cup. Psalm 116 verse 13. David says, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Perchance, maybe you've been struggling with alcohol, taking way too much, using it to do things you should never do. And if that's the case, here's what I propose you do. Trade cups. Trade cups. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read this verse where it says, You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and of the cup of devils. Trade cups. Say, Lord, I want to take this cup of salvation and call upon your name. I don't want to try to solve my problems with alcohol. I want you to be the solver of my problems. Amen. Let's all stand if you would. I think we could all use a little bit of warmth. It's cold in here. Amen. So let's have a word of prayer. We'll let you guys go outside and fellowship for a bit. Father, thank you for the warnings that you've given us in Scripture today. And if it were not for your mercy, God, all of us would be struggling under the deceit of sin. Whether it's alcohol or nakedness or whatever the sin might be. Thank you for coming to set us free from that. And I pray, Lord, anybody who might be struggling with it, give them the victory they need. Let them take that cup at your right hand, that cup of salvation, and call upon your name. Please bless the service to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.